Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 118, starting in verse 14 and going through verse 24. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live, and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's a joy to get to worship with you this morning. It is a privilege to be your pastor. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. This is the the New Testament letter that we will be meditating in all fall together. It will serve as the springboard of our worship. And Philippians for centuries has been referred to as the joy epistle. I don't know if you knew that, but scholars, theologians have have called this the epistle of joy, the, the letter of joy. And that's fitting because the word joy, the word rejoice, appears a total of 14 times in this short four-chapter letter. It's a joyful letter. It doesn't even include the, the phrase be cheered or the three uses of the word glad. It's a joyful book. The major theme of this letter is joy. And that's ironic when you consider the fact that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, wrote while he was being persecuted. He was suffering under house arrest in Rome in 62 AD. But Paul's bleak situation that he was in did not dictate his inner disposition. It did not diminish his joy. You got to ask the question, why? How is that possible? The reality is Paul's joy was not dictated by the circumstances he was in. Circumstances are very unpredictable aren't they? You know, you might not know this, but at 9.15, 9.20 a.m. this morning, the electricity just shut down in this building. And at first, me and the team, we started thinking, well, what, what are we going to do exactly? And I, I started praying, Lord, give me, you know, an inner George Whitfield to preach without a mic. And, uh, and then we realized we should pray. And, and so we circled up, and we just prayed, and about two to three minutes later, the power came back on. The Lord just answered that prayer. He's gracious to us. But circumstances do change. Life throws curveballs. And in a fallen world, we we typically experience more hard days than good days. That's just a fact. I love what my sister-in-law, Sarah, says. She's got this phrase. She's been using it for years. Life's tough. Wear a helmet. I know the football team in here, you can identify with that, right? That'll prevent some concussions on the field. But I would just add, make sure it's the helmet of salvation because life is tough. 
How was Paul able to have real, authentic joy under house arrest? So much joy that he was able to exhort others in joy and say, hey, don't feel bad for me. His joy was not rooted in circumstances. His joy was not rooted in other people who will no doubt fail us at times. They're imperfect, just as you and I are. His joy was rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the unchanging one, the good, sovereign, merciful Lord and King of all creation. Hebrews 13.8 says that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as Christians, that is where our joy is to be rooted. It is to be rooted in Jesus Christ and in His love for us, which we don't deserve, which we could not earn, and yet He lavishly gives us grace and love. His love is demonstrated most clearly at the cross. The cross that you and I deserved for our sin, but that He took the punishment on Himself for us. This letter, all fall, is going to continually exhort us, encourage us, remind us that we can rejoice in our Lord no matter what's happening in our life. Amen? Praise God for that. It doesn't mean that we won't have times where we grieve together or lament together. But, but here's the difference between us and the, and the lost world around us is that we can grieve and we can lament and still rejoice in the Lord at the same time. That's special. We're going to spend our time this morning focused on the first two verses in the first chapter. I want you to look with me at Philippians 1, verse 1 and 2, and consider the things that are here that can cause us to rejoice more in Christ. Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when was the last time you wrote a personal handwritten letter to somebody? When was the last time you received a handwritten letter? Just think about that for a second. Well, you've received and sent more emails and text messages in this past week than you did handwritten letters. I'm confident of that. Letter writing is kind of a bit of a lost art. I mean, we still do it, you know, birthdays, holidays. It still happens periodically, just not as common as maybe in the past. But it's funny, the way that we write letters today is so different than the way people were writing letters at the time when this letter was written. You know, people today, we, we start with dear so-and-so. You know, we start with the recipient. Then we get into the body of the letter. And then only at the end do we reveal, by the way, this is who's writing. Love Arch. You know, sincerely, arch. In the ancient Greco-Roman world in which Paul was writing in the first century, it was different. The, the beginning of a letter started actually with the, the writer, the sender of the letter. And then it continued with the name of the recipient, who the letter was to. And then it had this one word, Kyrene. It was greetings, greetings. And then you got into the body of the letter and then there was a conclusion at the end. 
And so Paul followed the, the custom of this time with this letter to the Philippians, but he did something different. And, and I like to call it the Christian flair of this letter, okay? It, it's, it's very Christian, characteristically. He doesn't just open up and say blandly, Paul and Timothy. He associates himself and Timothy with their relationship to Jesus Christ. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And he doesn't just say, to the members of the church in Philippi. No, he reminds them of their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, to all the saints in Christ at Philippi. He also reminds them that these saints are not alone. They're not leaderless, but they're with the overseers and deacons. And then he, he doesn't just say greetings. He says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for those reasons, I have entitled my sermon this morning a Christian greeting because that's what it is. Look again with me at verse 1a. We see the Christian writer. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So who's writing? Well, it says Paul and Timothy. However, as we'll see, we'll continue in the letter. It is not Paul and Timothy who are writing. It is Paul who's writing this letter. The context and the content make that very clear. But Paul mentions Timothy at the beginning of this letter because Timothy is so closely interwoven in partnership with Paul to this church in Philippi that it would be absurd not to mention him. This letter is coming from them, although it was written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And who's Timothy, you might ask? It's Paul's beloved disciple, travel assistant, Trusted companion, co-labor in Christ, partner in ministry. That's who Timothy is. Timothy was actively involved in the evangelization of churches in Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, as well as Achaia. We see that in Acts chapter 16 through 18. So Timothy was, he was both loved and respected by the Philippians. But how does Paul identify himself and Timothy at the beginning of this letter? Look at it servants of Christ Jesus. And this is very interesting to me because Paul could have identified himself as a number of things that would have been true to his calling, true to his identity. He could have said believer of Christ Jesus. could have said follower of Christ Jesus. He could have even said, listen, chosen instrument of Christ Jesus. That's what God said about Paul in Acts chapter 8, verse 15. He could have said, Apostle of Christ Jesus, reminding them of his authority as an apostle. He could have said royal ambassador of Christ Jesus. This just sounds better than servant. He could have said pastor. He could have said missionary. He could have said itinerant evangelist. He could have said Christian theologian, prolific author on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul says servants of Christ Jesus. I don't want us to miss that. The word here that's translated into the English as servants is actually the word douloi, which really means bondservant, which means slave. So what's Paul getting at here? 
In the first century, a servant would have owned a few possessions that would have been protected by certain rights, that would have been hired for a particular project or job, and then they could return home to their normal life, not with a slave, not with a bondservant. A slave belonged to his master like property. A slave didn't own anything. A slave was completely dependent upon his master to meet his needs. A slave could not even travel without his master's consent. And this is how Paul understands his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. And he's not sad about it. Paul reminded even the Corinthians... This isn't just to Paul. This is to all Christians. He reminded the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 of this fact that if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to the Savior. He said, you are not your own, Corinthians. Why? For you've been bought with a price. What price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says this. This is the implication. So glorify God in your body. Paul did not become a slave of Christ against his will. God changed Paul's will when he met him on that road to Damascus. Paul's will, Paul's desire was to murder and persecute and imprison Christians. He was a terrorist to anyone who identified with Christ. But because he was met with grace and mercy on that road to Damascus, it changed everything inside and out. And he became not wanting to destroy Christians as a terrorist. He became a missionary. He wanted everyone to become a Christian as he was now. Paul reflects the attitude of the Old Testament slave who, even given the opportunity for freedom, refused it because he loved his good master. Listen to this. Exodus 21, 5 through 6. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. And Paul rightly understood that everyone is a slave to something or someone. And he knew Jesus to be the greatest master of all. He knew that he was gentle and lowly. He knew that his yoke was easy and his burden light. He knew that being a slave of Christ was the greatest privilege he could have on earth. And so he submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ willingly. These men were not just servants, though. They were servants of Christ Jesus. And that is a very important uh, distinguishing mark to make here. Because although they did serve people in ministry, no doubt, the Philippians, right? They were primarily servants of Christ. They were not people pleasers. They were not seeking the approval of man. But the approval of Christ, the pleasure of Christ in everything that they did. Whether they, ate or, whether they ate or drank, they did it all to the glory of God. And to be really honest with you all, there, there are too many politicians in the pulpit today. 
What I mean by that is there are so many men standing in a pulpit that are more concerned with what people think of what they say or what they believe than what their master thinks of what they're saying. My greatest concern is that I would not say anything from this pulpit that would offend God Almighty. That I would not say anything that would misrepresent Him or His Word or His will for my life or yours. That's my greatest concern. But let me ask you, who, who have you been serving recently? I just want you to self-examination. Who have you been serving recently? Have you been serving the desires of your flesh? Have you been servant of yourself? Have you been a servant of people, of being a people pleaser, seeking the approval of people? Or have you been a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoying it? The freedom of being his slave. The joy of being a servant of the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'd rather be his cupbearer than the servant of any king on earth. Well, that covers the Christian writer. He identifies himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Let's look at the Christian recipient in verse 1b. Paul writes to who? All the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. All the saints in Christ Jesus. Well, before we move on, we've got to identify what does that mean? What is a saint? And friends, this is probably the most misunderstood term today that's in the Bible. People don't understand what a saint is. They oftentimes, they unfortunately think that a, a saint is this higher order, extra good Christian. It's this person who's in a special category that's set apart from the rest of us peasant believers. That's not what a saint is. You've heard the, the phrase, oh, she's a saint. You know, or, oh man, you're, you're such a saint. And what people mean by that is you're, you're such a good person. You have shown me so much love in this moment or you've done some really good things. That's what they mean when they say that phrase. The misunderstanding of this term is due in large part, and I'm not trying to point blame, but it, it's a fact, from the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, who they've elevated some believers over others, over the course of church history, they've even canonized them as saints for some of the good things that they've done. And when you think about their theology, their, their, their system of theology, it makes more sense that they have a false gospel, the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that we are saved not by faith alone, but by faith plus works. And so it would only make sense that they've got different categories for believers, which is not the case. The words, the phrase, the saints, hagios in the original language just means the holy ones. It just means Christians. So if you're a Christian, you're a saint. And if you're a saint, you're a Christian. What's interesting is this is the most common word that the Apostle Paul used in the New Testament for Christians, saints. It's funny, we don't use those, that term as often today, it seems. And this is so significant because what it means is that the Apostle Paul was not writing to a select group of all-American, all-star Christians within that church in Philippi. No, he was, he was writing to all the, church, all the Christians in that church of Philippi. Saints are just the people who have repented of their sin, 
put their faith in Christ alone, and at that moment been declared righteous and holy by God, who never lies. That's all it means. Saints are those people who God has made holy, meaning he's made them set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from the world. Set apart from the darkness in which we live, of fallen humanity. They have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. They've been called out of fellowship with sin and debauchery. And they've been called into the fellowship with God the Father and his Son and the saints. Paul distinguishes these saints from other saints in the land by saying that this is to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. That's a specific position. That's where God has positioned them. That's a location. And it reminds these saints and it reminds us that God has not only put them in Christ, holy in God's sight, the same righteousness of Christ imputed to them, to their account, positionally righteous for their own salvation. No, no, no. Yes, it's that, but not only that. They're in Philippi. They're in Christ, but they're in Philippi. He's positioned them in Philippi. Why? To be holy ones in Philippi. This is a very specific location in God's sovereignty in this first century in the Roman Empire for such a time as this. They are to be holy because God is holy and in Christ they are now perfectly holy. They're to be holy in the land. They're to be set apart. They're to be different. Philippians 2, verse 14 and 15. Paul exhorts them, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God. Without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. They were made saints. They didn't make themselves saints. God made them saints by His grace in Christ. Why? To be easily distinguished from the world in which they lived. Easily distinguished from other people in Philippi who were still lost and dead in their sin. Their family dynamics were to be different. The way they conducted business was to be different. Their conversations were to be different. They weren't vain conversations. They weren't shallow conversations. They were rich, grace-filled conversations. They were to speak of the Lord as they rose up in the morning and throughout the day and before they went to bed at night. Conversations. Just so captivated by God, His transcendence, His eminence, his goodness, his continued daily morning mercies. They were made saints by God to be clearly seen, walking in a different direction than the world. That they were swimming upstream and it was difficult when everyone else was floating the lazy river down. The way is hard that leads to life. It's narrow is the door, but the way is broad that leads to death and destruction. Many enter it, but the saints were to enter a different way. They were to live a different way, and they were to enter into life in a world that was dead and perishing. 
They were made saints to show how these people who were lost and were perishing could be forgiven of their sins, escape the punishment for their sins that's coming at judgment day when Christ returns, escape death, slavery to sin, the fear of death, and enter into eternal life. They were positioned for such a time as that. And we too, are we not saints in McKinney and the surrounding region, positioned not in the first century, but in the 21st century for such a time as this? Are we not? We are. Did God not number your days from the very beginning? He did. Does God not know you and every hair on your head? He does. Does He not have a purpose for your life, for His glory and the glory of His Son? He does. In community. Here at Christ Redeemer. And in this city and in this region. Are we not connected to the saints in Philippi? We are. Because we're in Christ if you put your faith in Him. And we have the same purpose in Christ, to be servants of Christ, to serve Him. Not all in the same way. We're given different gifts. I don't expect you to do the same thing that I do, and I hope you don't expect me to do the same thing you do. We need to do different things. We need to work together, different members, one body, functioning for the glory of God. Servants of Christ, same purpose, to live a holy life. Same purpose, to preach the gospel to our neighbors for the same goal, that more would enter into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ and glorify Him and worship Him. These saints were not alone. They were not leaderless. Again, God provided them the overseers and deacons. What are overseers and deacons? Before I answer that, let me, let me point out something there. Look, look at this. Overseers, deacons. Do you see that? There's a plurality. It means there's multiple overseers. There's multiple deacons. And as churches grow and mature in the Lord, there should be a multitude of, of a plurality of elders or overseers, a plurality of deacons. Maybe not up front at first, but over time as we're maturing and men are, are meeting those qualifications. What is an overseer? An overseer is simply a servant leader in the church. They are the servant leaders in the church. The pastors, the elders, the overseers. Synonymous for those terms. They are the ones who are charged with caring for the flock of God, whom God has entrusted a certain flock to know their names, to know their families, they're the ones who are to focus on the ministry of prayer and the Word of God. They're to teach the Word. They're to preach the Word. They're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They're to exercise oversight. It's in the name, overseer. Oversight. So that the church would be healthy and it would be for the, the benefit of the well-being of the whole body. Who are the deacons? The word diakonos. It just means servants. The deacons are the leading servants in the church. They're not exercising oversight. They're involved in a variety of ministries in the church. 
And there are those who attend to typically more of the, the physical or the practical matters in the church. We see that in Acts chapter 6, and we'll see that in the spring as we get into 1 Timothy. But both of these groups, the overseers and the deacons, are vitally important to the health of the church. They're one portion of the church. And it, what they're to do is they're to work together, the deacons supporting the, the leadership of the elders and they are to possess the highest character and highest integrity, and they are to be models of faithfulness to the church body. And I want to mention one last thing before we transition. In mentioning that these saints are, number one, in Philippi, number two, with the overseers and deacons, I want you to see something. For, for the friends in your life who go, I'm not a member of a church, I don't, I don't really attend church, that's not for me. From the very beginning of the church, in the first century church, there was a clear local body, they were in Philippi, there was clear leadership structure, overseers and deacons, and so that clearly means that not only are we servants of Christ, but we are to serve Christ in his church. We're to be a part of the church. We are members of the body. That's why we should be members of the church which is the body of Christ. And so whether that's here or elsewhere, friends, I, I want to implore you to plug into and become a member of a healthy, gospel-preaching, Bible-teaching, faithful church. Not perfect, none of us are, but a faithful church. And I'd love to, if, if it's not here, I'd love to help you find a healthy church to plug into. Let's move on. The Christian greeting is in verse 2. Look at the Christian greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul doesn't say kyrene. He doesn't say greetings generally. He says charis. He says grace to you. What kind of grace is he talking about here? I'm going to say something kind of bold, but he's not talking about saving grace. Okay? Now, he definitely, that word triggers the reminder that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the kind of grace that he's talking about here is not saving grace. Why? Because he's writing to saved people. He's not encouraging these saints to get saved again. The grace that they need is strengthening grace. The sufficient grace to, to meet each day in its troubles and its trials. Sustaining grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says, my grace is what? Sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Meaning, the sufficient grace. It's the grace that's adequate to meet the trials and, and the difficulties that you're facing each and every day. No matter what the situation it's strengthening grace. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It gives us strength for every day. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
This grace, it sustains us. It sustains you when there's nothing left in the tank. In other words, because these saints in Christ are made holy, they have access to the throne of grace, to a God who's holy. Why? So that they can be replenished by the sustaining, sufficient, strengthening grace. Not to enter the race of faith, but to endure in the race of faith that God has placed them in. Where? In Philippi. For us, in McKinney, and the surrounding area. We can prayerfully seek God's grace whenever we want to. Whenever you know you are in need. I mean, friends, we are always in need of His grace. Amen? Like every second of every moment. And yet, there are some times where you go, I need grace. I need something that is from outside of me. I need to go to the source of grace, which we'll get to in just a second. But it's not only grace that that He wants for this church and which God supplies for this church. It is peace as well. He says grace to you and peace. And Paul's not referring to, catch this, look at me. He's not referring to peace with God. Why? Because these saints already have peace with God. Romans 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified, which means declared right with God, by faith, we have something. He says we have peace with God. That's not something you you were born into this world by default having. We are born into this world, enemies of God. Something has to change. We have to turn from our sin, put our faith in Christ, and be made right with God and have peace with God. Being born into a Christian family does not bring you peace with God. You must, as an individual, become a saint by putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You must be born again. And as difficult as it was for you to be born the first time, and as little effort as you put into being born the first time physically, you must be born again from above by God or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never become a saint. But if you do, if you are, and God transforms you, and the old man's dead and the new man begins living, and that new heart starts pumping, and you're a servant of Christ and a saint in Christ, you have peace with God. And that peace can overshadow every little anxiety that we have on earth because it is peace with God. Paul's referring to the peace of God, not peace with God. The peace of God is different. He he refers to the peace of God later on in this letter in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It's something, the peace of God is something that we experienced after salvation, not just once, many times, many occasions. When I was up in Pennsylvania with my wife and, and our six-month-old was having surgery and then there was complications after the surgery, many occasions during that 12-hour stretch, which was scary, we experienced the peace of God. 
I know that if you're in Christ, you've experienced the peace of God more than once since you started walking with God. Paul says in Philippians 4, 7 that this peace of God it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the peace of God that floods us and surrounds us when we are in a fiery trial or something just real difficult. And we go, I should be panicking, I should be worried, and yet I have this calm. It doesn't come from me. I can take no credit for it. It's the peace of God. We can experience the peace of God more and more. How? It's a good question. How can I experience the peace of God more and more? It's a result of approaching the throne of grace daily, sometimes minute by minute, and receiving His grace to sustain and strengthen and steady our minds and hearts. Just go to Him in prayer. Open up your Bible. Jump into fellowship with the saints. Be exhorted in the truth of the Word of God. That's how you can experience the peace of God more and more. What's the source of grace and peace? He tells us. He says it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Which you might ask, well that's one, two of the three persons of the triune God. So where's the Holy Spirit? Right? Is the Holy Spirit getting no credit here? The Holy Spirit is, is hidden here, but he's not absent. The Holy Spirit is the one who is actually applying the grace and the peace in those moments. Romans 8, 26 tells us this. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And that's true. There were times up in that hospital in Pennsylvania where we didn't know what to pray for. It says that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We can praise God for that, can't we? And you received the Holy Spirit when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by putting your faith in Him. As you and I face each day, God's mercies are new each morning. God's grace is sufficient for each trial. And we can have the grace and peace that we need to navigate this fallen world by turning to the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a very Christian greeting. The writer identifies himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. The recipients are identified as saints, holy ones in Christ Jesus. The greeting was composed of grace and peace that are found in the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and applied by the Spirit of God. This passage gives us plenty to rejoice in. I mean, what a privilege to be servants of Christ. What a privilege to share in His righteousness that was imputed to us as He took on our sin at that cross. Great exchange. 
What a privilege to be called a saint. What a privilege to have access at all times to the throne of grace, to be replenished by the presence of God, walking in a relationship with God that's real, no matter what the day throws at us. I have no doubt that there are some of you here this morning who God has made aware that you're not yet a servant of Christ, that you're not yet a saint, that you do not yet have peace with God and you have not yet experienced the peace of God. And if that's you this morning, I want to talk to you. At one time in my life, I was lost. I actually was lost. I thought I was found. I had said, I'm a Christian all my life. And I didn't understand the cross. I didn't understand what God had done. I didn't understand that he bought me with a price at that cross. I had not repented of my sin. I, have not put, I had not put my faith in Christ alone. I was still trusting in some of my righteousness. I had not received the full credit of his righteousness by faith alone. And so I can identify with you. I have compassion for you. I want to talk to you. And if that's you, I'm going to be standing right here at the end of the service. God called me into this ministry for you, whoever you are. And I'm going to be right here and I want to talk to you. And it's not that I don't want to talk to the rest of you, but I've got to talk to that person today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of being servants and saints of Christ Jesus. Not because of anything we did, not because of anything we could have ever done, but because you had mercy on sinners like us. We pray that we would be a people holy, set apart in this city for your glory, for the honor of Christ, in Jesus' name we pray this, amen.